morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They said this to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on do not sin again. Juan 7.53 AL 8.11 Entonces todos se fueron a casa, pero Jesús se fue al monte de los olivos. Al amanecer se presentó de nuevo en el templo. Toda la gente se le acercó y él se sentó a enseñarles. Los maestros de la ley y los fariseos llevaron entonces a una mujer sorprendida en adulterio. Y poniéndola en el medio del grupo, le dijeron a Jesús, Maestro, a esta mujer se le ha sorprendido en el acto del mismo adulterio. En la ley de Moisés nos ordenó apedrear a tales mujeres. ¿Tú qué dices? Con esta pregunta le estaban tendiendo una trampa para tener de qué acusarlo. Pero Jesús se inclinó y con el dedo comenzó a escribir en el suelo. Y como ellos lo acosaban a preguntas, Jesús le incorporó y les dijo, Aquel de ustedes que esté libre de pecado que tire la primera piedra. Inclinándose de nuevo, siguió escribiendo en el suelo. Al oír esto, se fueron retirando uno tras otro, comenzando por los más viejos hasta dejar a Jesús solo con la mujer que aún seguía allí. Entonces él se incorporó y le preguntó: Mujer, ¿dónde están? Ya nadie te condena. Nadie, Señor. Tampoco yo te condeno. Ahora vete y no vuelvas a pecar. Thank you for our readings, Dora and Julio. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. And I'm a pastor here at Zao MKE Church. We are um, sort of in the final third of our series, Do You, which is something we've been exploring this fall. What does it mean to be fully ourselves, to be understood as God's creatures, 
to come into the people that God has created us to be, despite all of these pressures in the world around us. Today, the question is, how do we know our worth? Carrie shared a story uh, from, during her testimony, she shared a story from kindergarten. And I think that that's really appropriate. I actually have a story from my youth as well. And we learn very, very young how our worth is determined in the world around us. But from that young age, we are beginning at a disconnect from how the world determines worth versus how God, who created us, determines our worth. So I want to invite you back to imagine me as a fourth grader on a saga with their retainer. Now, I know what you're thinking, retainer story, this can't be that important, but I want you to go with me to being in fourth grade and understand that this was life and death. So, when I was in fourth grade, I went to a birthday party. It was in my neighborhood, actually, so I walked over to Nicole's house. She was the birthday girl. And, uh, And as, like, an awkward preteen, I had tons of like dental issues happening. And so I had this retainer and I hated it. I mean, like, I don't, I don't think that's a big, like bold stance. I'm not sure anyone's like super pro their own retainer, but I really, really hated it. And it was embarrassing. And so I remember walking over to Nicole's house and like, you know, waving goodbye to my parents at the door, have fun at the birthday party. And then like, I was like a block away before I slipped it out of my mouth and threw it in my pocket, which is what I did anytime I was out of eyesight of my parents. So when I had left the house and I put it in my, in my pocket, went to this birthday party, I'm, I'm, I'm having a great time. I'm getting on with my life. We're playing games. It's, it's all going very well. We go out to the movies, and so we all pile into Nicole's mom's minivan, and we drive out. And at the end of the movie, I realize I don't have my retainer, and I start to panic. Now, this was true then, and it's true now. I am a loser of things. (laughs) It's hard not to just stop at that middle section. I am a loser because that is something that I feel so deeply. I'm somebody who loses stuff. And uh, what I grew up understanding was that I used to lose important things, like a lot. Now, I didn't know, I didn't have a a super great sense. I was in fourth grade, so I didn't really know how much money was worth what, but I knew that retainer was really expensive. And I knew that it was bad that I couldn't find it. So I started to panic. And I asked all my little fourth grade friends and we're like crawling in the theater seats trying to find my gross retainer. And we can't find it. We even go so far as to look in the trash, the movie theater trash. We're like sifting through old popcorn trying to find my retainer. And at some point, Nicole's mom's like, dude, I don't, this is not going to happen for you. We got to go home. And so I'm crushed. I'm devastated. We're in, we're in the car, in the minivan. We're pulling up to Nicole's house. I'm like envisioning the end of my life. And I see something pink and hideous on the driveway. And I scream. (laughs) And I tell her to stop. And I run out of the car. And my heart leaps as I see my retainer on the driveway. And then it plummets to the bottom of my stomach when I realize that it has been run over already. Crushed into a million little pieces. 
And I felt in that moment like utter garbage. I knew I had done something bad, but I actually had a really hard time separating that from this other inescapable reality that I was bad. I was a bad kid. I was a loser of things. Good kids don't do that. Good kids wear their retainers in the first place. But I knew that I had done something really, really bad, and I was just so overwhelmed with shame because I was a bad kid. I didn't want to tell anybody about it. I didn't want to see my friends. It ruined the whole rest of the gathering. I was inconsolable because I had done something so bad. Now, as an adult, I realized that losing and crushing your retainer while a bummer is not the end of the world. But the reason I tell you this story in particular is twofold. First of all, this is how shame works. Shame finds something, something that we've done, something that's not actually essential to who we are, but something that we can attach to our self-concept and draws us out, actually away from that sense of who we are, that sense of what we're worth, and into despair. Shame is something that's not really very rational, right? So it's, it's, it's not this logical thing that says, oh yeah, of course, Jonah, your entire worth as a human being is determined to your relationship to your fourth grade retainer. That's, that's not how the world works, that's not how worth really works, but that is how shame works. We, we pinpoint these pieces of our lives, not pieces of ourselves, but pieces of our lives, and all of a sudden, our entire worth, our entire well-being is tied to this one moment, this one mistake, this one failure. It defines everything about who we are, and it crushes us. The other reason I tell this story, this illogical, silly story about a mistake I made when I was 11, is because it's relatively easy for me to stand up here and tell you, hey, my worth as a person is not actually tied to the mistake I made at Nicole's birthday party. But it's a lot harder for me to tell you other true things, like my worth is not actually tied to bigger, more important, more adult parts of my life, my job, my relationships, bigger mistakes with bigger consequences. Now, I have made much bigger mistakes with much bigger consequences since the fourth grade. And I've talked to you about some of them here. I have failed relationships. I have hurt people. I have hurt myself in really deep and profound ways. And while it's easy for me to say that retainer doesn't define me, it's a lot harder for me to say the second true thing, which is my other bigger, more profound mistakes don't define me either. But that's where we get caught up. And that is so much of the narrative that we have about our worth. That if we go through a breakup, for instance, we feel like the whole relationship, including the part where it ended, is a referendum on whether we're worthy of being loved at all. If we are no longer on speaking terms with family, it's so hard to, to dissect that and not just fall into this shame pit that says, well, if this family member doesn't love me, maybe they're right, maybe I'm not worth it. 
when we do really awful things, things that we feel really badly about, it's so hard, even as adults, not to just go to that place that says, I am bad. Of course, of course I did that. I'm a bad kid. And it's actually a very young part of us that we go to. A part of us that actually still, still wonders, is still curious, wants to hear from someone, no, you're not a bad kid. You made a mistake. But that's not the voice that we hear in the world. Because the world around us wants badly to define us, to rank us, to stack us against one another. We live in a culture of fear and scarcity, and now more than ever, you can especially see it politically. We are only okay if we are more okay than someone else. That is a trap that we have fallen very deeply into together as a culture, a wounding that we walk through the world with that says, okay, well, you know, things are, are rough for me, but at least I'm not that guy. And we have this culture that pits us against one another that says, your worth is defined by X, Y, or Z characteristic that makes you worthy or less worthy of love relative to all of the people around you. And we play this game where we're like, okay, well, if I can just, if I can just be more worthy, if I can just make fewer mistakes than that guy, if I can just tick more of the boxes, the identity boxes, that, that my identity, my privileges are more powerful, more worthy than that person, then maybe I'll be okay. And it's a losing battle. And you know what? We all know that in our heart. And so I want you to reflect for a moment. What are those, just to go back to a little lightness, right? What are those retainer incidents, those things, those little things from your life? Maybe they happened a long time ago. You were coloring wrong on the page by turning it. You, you broke your retainer in the street. You forgot the words to the song you were singing at the talent show. What are those first early moments when you started to fall into that pattern of thinking, maybe I'm bad? And how do those relate to those big things? Those big things in your life right now that you're still convinced of, where you can say, okay, well, the ta talent show didn't actually determine who I am, but maybe my losing my job does. They're the same. They're the same, and we're in that same wound over and over again, that wound of shame that takes our worth from outside of our being and puts it into the world, into other people's assessments of us, into our mistakes or failures or successes. There are a few ways culturally to define your worth. You can define yourself by what you've done wrong, you can define yourself by what you've done right. Or, as God does, you can define yourself by who you are. In the story today from scripture, we have a mixture, but it is ultimately a story about worth. <coughs> I'll beg your forgiveness. Some of you know that I have been um, dealing with a bit of a tickle in my throat for weeks. So give me a moment here.
Got better? All right. So the story we have today. It starts with Jesus, as do we always at Zao. Jesus is with his community teaching. He's riding on the ground. He's in the temple. He's engaging with his people. And up comes a mob, essentially. (coughs) A mob of people dragging a woman. And they've come to accuse her in front of Jesus. They've actually come to accuse Jesus, which we learn later in the passage. But they've come with accusations on their heart. And they have come to condemn. Condemnation, again, is something ultimately first and foremost about worth. Who is worthy of salvation? Thank you. Who is worthy of redemption? Who is worthy of love? They have determined that she is no longer worthy, that she should be condemned, because she has committed adultery. So they come, this mom, they approach Jesus as he's teaching, and they say, Jesus, what do we do? You've been preaching all over town about mercy and forgiveness, but the law of Moses is absolutely clear. She should be stoned to death. So what are you going to do? Jesus is theoretically on a trap here because if he says, you know, follow the law, stone her to death, he's immediately understood to be a hypocrite because he's been preaching mercy. But if he says instead be merciful to her. Now he's violating the law of Moses. So like I said, this mob is really coming to accuse Jesus to try and pin him down. But they're also accusing her. And in a way, their accusations of her are justifications for themselves. Because as they're doing this worthiness assessment, they're saying, she is not worthy, but we, the righteous, the ones who are accusing, the ones who are calling her out, we are the ones that are worthy. And all of this forgiveness stuff you keep preaching gets in the way of people seeing how worthy and righteous we are. Because Jesus is constantly refusing to participate in this system of ranking. Jesus says the first will be last and the last will be first. Well, that really messes up your order, doesn't it? If your whole world, if your whole culture and community is built on who ranks above whom, and Jesus just levels that and says, all have sinned and fallen short, all are forgiven, all are unconditionally loved, all of a sudden your entire metric for understanding your own worth evaporates. And that's what happens piece by piece in this story here. They accuse the woman to Jesus, and he just sits there. Like there's a big passage where he's just, he just sits. He continues to write in silence. Now some people interpret that to mean that he's writing down their sins. We have no idea what he's writing in the sand. But for today, I'd like us to consider maybe he's just waiting them out. Where they're like, she's an adulterer. And he's like, mm, okay. And? Well, we want to condemn her. Why? Because to Jesus, these things are entirely unrelated. She has made a mistake or been falsely accused. There's lots of layers and context to this story. But 
Let's take their word for it. The text says that she was caught in the act. So let's say she made a mistake, that she hurt someone, that she violated some relationship through adultery. Jesus is totally unmoved, like literally unmoved, when they're saying, well, she should be condemned for that. So Jesus just steps out of this whole metric altogether. Because condemnation, being about assessing value, who's worth saving, who's worth redemption, who's worth forgiveness, Jesus' answer is yes, all, always. So he won't participate with them in defining her by this one act. They want to assess her worth through this one thing she did, and Jesus just won't. But similarly, he won't participate in their self-congratulation, their own sense of their righteousness, that they are the accusers and not the accused. And in fact, he, sh- he throws a huge wrench in their whole process by reminding them that if they were to be held to this kind of metric, all would fall short. He says, anyone who doesn't have any sins, great. You get to do it then. One of the things that goes unsaid in this passage is that Jesus himself is the only person understood to be without sin. So Jesus is the only one who has the right to throw a stone at anyone given this metric of worth. And what does Jesus do? He just sits and is and is present to people. They all kind of sheepishly disappear into the corners and Jesus is left with this woman whose worth was on trial and he says, oh man, where'd everybody go? No one's left to accuse you, are they? And she says, no. And he says, well, I'm not going to do it. I don't condemn you. And then he says, go and sin no more. Which is perplexing. But ultimately a reflection again on the fact that her worth, her value, is entirely separate from any sin she may or may not have committed. He's conceding you've done something wrong and very calmly refusing to judge her for it. Now he wants her to be healed. He doesn't want her to be condemned to death. God never gives up on us. God never says, oh, now you've gone too far. The sins are incidental to our worth. That doesn't mean that God doesn't care about them. That doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to heal. God wants badly for you to heal. God wants you to live in love and repentance, to grow, to be made whole. And that is what he is encouraging her to do. And also, that is an entirely separate question from worthiness. That if you never change at all, if you never repent of anything, if you sin over and over and over again without stopping to even question it, you are unequivocally worthy of God's love. They are two different questions altogether. God desires our healing. God invites us into healing. And also, no matter what, God pours out God's love into you because you are worthy inherently. And God knows because God made you that way. God chooses 
to understand worth in, by a completely different metric. I made you. I made you worthy of love. You don't have to do anything. And you can't do anything. Preaching about this passage, Pope Francis said once, God does not nail us to our sin. God does not identify us with the evil we have done. We have a name, and God does not identify this name with the sin we have committed, which is why God can say of me, oh yeah, Jonah, you've done some horrible stuff, and without skipping a beat, say, yeah, Jonah, you're perfect. And these things are not in contradiction because God made you perfectly and you are perfectly worthy of love. And that is not something that God has ever questioned. And when the world seeks to find any little thing to define your worth by, Jesus is over here going, no. There's no question. You are loved. You are worthy. So God does not nail us to our sin. But neither does God nail us to our successes or accomplishments, which can be an equal trap. This is the thing that maybe we do when we're feeling healthier, when we're like, oh yeah, no, I'm not gonna define myself by all those mistakes. Look at all the good things I've done, right? That's me on my better days. I'm like, I'm good at other things. But that's just as, as frightening. That's just as, uh, as insidious because we become held captive to it. There is a very flawed and complicated writer that I like to listen to who has a podcast. His name is Dan Harmon. And he won, uh, he won an Emmy. He's one of the co-creators of the show Rick and Morty. And Rick and Morty won an Emmy. And he was talking on his podcast about his experience. Um, he was talking about how after he won an Emmy, he ended up eating a sandwich that was not for him. It was like at a press food table, but he was like defiant about it. According to him, he said he was drunk on vodka and victory, and so just ate the sandwich. But he was talking about what it felt like to win this Emmy. And he said, I think that's all of our fantasies. The idea of getting an award, that's the thing you want to achieve is this one brief, weightless moment, like, so I'm okay no matter what I do? Which is such an ironic feeling to have to win an award to feel. It makes no sense. You're supposed to feel like that when you wake up. And I heard that and I laughed and I also felt like I really resonated with it. Later in, the, in that same podcast, he's talking about it and he says, well, winning the award doesn't mean I'm better than people. It just means that I can breathe for about six weeks. Because he's been working towards something like this his entire life. And he's been staking his worth on it his entire life. And that whole thing that he's aiming for is just this one moment where he says, so I'm okay no matter what I do. That sense of worthiness, not based on anything that he does or doesn't do in the next five minutes. But the knowledge that he's okay, no matter what. And he recognizes that that's so false and so fleeting when we pair it either with our mistakes or with our accomplishments. Six weeks is his own prognosis for himself. The achievement of a lifetime 
a creative award that he's been striving for for decades, he thinks will buy him about six weeks of feeling okay as a person. And so we can't, we can't do that. We can't participate in this hierarchy, in this earning. We can't be captive to our mistakes, but neither can we be captive to our successes. We have to get out of this trap. And Jesus, as demonstrated in this passage, offers us a way, this act of resistance, this refusal to participate. It goes further into compassion and forgiveness. It erases that system altogether by saying, yes, of course you are worthy of love. Of course you are worthy of infinite forgiveness. We want to grow together. And also, no matter what happens, the love that you are offered by God is inextricable from who you are. This freedom in Jesus comes from Jesus knowing our worth. And our job here is to strive not for accomplishments, not to earn it, not to avoid our mistakes, but to believe that Jesus is right when he says, I love you, and you are worthy of my love. Again, in Carrie's testimony, she mentioned a challenge that I offered to her. And I'd like to extend that to you all now. What would happen if you believed that God loves you perfectly, exactly as you are, and that it wasn't some mistake, that you were worthy of that love? And if you can't even comprehend that, I want you to just pretend. How would you act? What would be different? What would you say differently about yourself? What words would you speak to yourself differently if you truly believed that you were worthy of infinite and unending love from the divine? Now, we all struggle to believe that we are worthy of love. But that is part of the goal here. I've said it before, John Wesley, one of the theologians important to our tradition, talks about belief not as some intellectual assent to ideas, not as saying, you know, I I, I stipulate to the facts of Christianity, but as the deep and abiding trust that we are beloved children of God. That is the thing for which we strive. That is the thing that binds our community together. That is the thing we're searching for, is that knowing, that deep sense of knowing and rest, that knowing we are beloved children of God, beloved. And, as Dan Harmon would say, so we're okay, no matter what we do. So I want to invite you into that imagination exercise. You don't even have to try to pretend to believe it. Just wonder with me, what would be different if you did believe? Could you spend a whole afternoon acting as though you were perfectly loved and lovable? The other beautiful thing about community is that we don't all each have to believe all the time because we can hold belief together as a group. So even if I can't believe always that I am loved, I can believe that you are loved. 
and I do. So know that in those moments when you can't possibly imagine it, when you think this can't be real, know that I am holding that belief for you, that I believe that you are loved infinitely, that I know in my core that you are worthy of that love, and I hope that you can pick up that belief with me soon. I know that I'm going to need you to hold that belief about me too. Our God, the one who made us, the one who knows us so deeply, is the only one who really knows our worth. And God has told us that our worth is beyond anything that we can imagine, that we are worth loving, that we are worth living for, and that we are worth dying for. That is our worth as demonstrated to us by our God. Our challenge is to believe. Believe that what God says about us is true. And we do that together. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, you say so many things about us that are unbelievable. You bear witness to our struggle. You bear witness to our shortcomings. You hear those voices in the world around us who rightly or wrongly make assessments of us and then tie those assessments to our worth. God, there are so many areas of the world, people in the world, institutions of power in the world that want to reduce us. But God, you are always expanding and always in the direction of love. God, we pray that we would be swept up in your love for us, that you would help us to believe when we don't believe, that we could see that you are right in what you say of us. Amen. I'll ask you to stand again with us as we sing about that, how we're known and